Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We left off in verse 7. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Appreciate uh, Pastor Dan finishing up the book of Galatians. Uh, He did a great job. And then Pastor Rich beginning the book of Ephesians and continuing that verse-by-verse study as I was away in Israel. So excited to get into the book of Ephesians tonight. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. And we come tonight desiring that you would speak to us and Lord, we ask that you would give us exactly what we need from you. We come to your throne room of grace. Lord, pray for those that need encouragement, that you would provide it. Lord, where we need conviction, that you would speak that into our hearts and our lives. That we would really come to understand who we are in you. That our position in Christ. So we ask that you would bless this time and speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Two words that I hope you remember tonight. It's this, it's in him, that we're in Christ. In these verses, really starting from verse 3, going down through verse 14, you'll find over and over again, in Christ, in him, in Christ, in him. I have a small piece of paper up here. A lot of times in my Bible, I'll use post-its, and you may not be able to see it because this one's pretty tiny. It's maybe about a half inch by a quarter inch piece of paper, and I'll, I'll mark a particular passage. But you see this little post-it here, and I'll put it inside of my Bible, and there's really no potential now of seeing that post-it. It's completely in the Bible. And when we think about who we are in Christ, is we are in Christ. We are robed in his righteousness. And one of the most important things for us to understand is that position that we now have in Christ. So when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, he doesn't see our failure, our doubt, our fear, our imperfection. He sees his Son. And we put our faith in Christ, receiving Christ as our Savior, then that's the way that the Father has chosen to relate to us. The book of Ephesians divides itself up into three words, and it's sit, walk, and stand. And Watchman Nee, he divided Ephesians that way, and it's right from the text. In chapter 2, it tells us that we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That's our position. It's past tense, it's already done. If you're in Christ, then you're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And that's a position of rest, isn't it? To be seated. You think about your recliner, your couch, and you're you're resting. And we have a position of rest because Christ has finished the work. Amen? And then in chapter 4, it says, I beseech you to walk worthy of your calling. So sit is the first word. Walk is the second word. And it's based off of our position in Christ that then we're challenged to live out that grace of God to walk with the Lord and to walk worthy of our calling. But many times in the Christian life, we get the order mixed up. A lot of times when we're discipling someone, we really encourage them in the conduct before they know who they are in Christ. And we say, this is the way you need to treat your spouse. This is the way that you need to live in sexual purity. This is the kind of words that should come out of your mouth. This is the kind of employee that you should be. This is the kind of employer that you should be. All good truth but it's secondary to the position that we've received in Christ. And I think the reason for that is because it's opposite our nature. We tend to think, well, the grace comes after the good effort on our part. Well, I'll put in the good effort, I'll get my act together, then maybe God will be gracious. But the truth is, is that it's first our belief before behavior. It's what you believe about Christ, it's your position in Christ, 
that ultimately affects your behavior. So it's really, really important to sink yourself deep into the first three chapters, the grace of God. Be reminded of it. Be established in it. God's unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. And then it goes to stand. So sit, walk, stand. In chapter six, you may be familiar with this, Paul writes and says, take up the whole armor of God so that you've done everything that you can to stand in the evil day. And that's the position that God wants us to have as it is a dark and evil day that we'd be able to stand inside of the armor of Christ. And that's what God is equipping us towards to fight in this battle. So sit, walk, and stand. If you missed last week, Rich did a great job of laying the foundation, giving us the background from the book of Acts, this church of Ephesus in modern day Turkey that Paul is writing to. Let's review just a little bit. We're going to go back to verse 3 and I'll read down to verse 7. Well, we'll pick up our study tonight. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1 tells us that Paul's writing this while he's in prison. Most scholars believe that it's while he's in Rome, under house arrest for two years, the end of the book of Acts. And Paul finds himself extremely grateful and thankful in such a difficult situation. And he says, every spiritual blessing has been given to me in Christ Jesus. He lists things that we have in Christ because we're in him. That has nothing to do with our circumstances. You might find yourself in a prison-like time, a prison-like experience, and reminded of all that you have in Christ Jesus, your position in Christ. From verse 3 down to verse 14, you'll find no period. It is the longest run-on sentence. Paul gets so excited about the grace of God his position in Christ, it's like it just begins to overflow from his heart. If you were just going to begin to speak from your heart tonight about Christ and your relationship with him and what he's done for you, what would come to your heart and mind? That's what Paul tells us. And he says that we have all the spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So Paul expounds on these spiritual blessings and he says, first thing, we've been chosen. We've been chosen by God before the foundations of the world. Now that can really either trip you up or encourage you. God knows everything about you. He saw your being before it even came into existence and the mystery of God's election is that he would choose us. He knows everything about us and yet he chooses us, that's love. If you knew everything about me, you would not choose me. If I knew everything about you, I would not choose you. That's the truth of the situation, isn't it? And God knows everything about us. He sees all of our sin, all of our shortcoming, and he chooses us before the foundations of the world. He chose us so that we could be without blame, that we could be holy, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So he chose us, he predestined us to be sons and daughters. He chose us beforehand so that we could be his sons, we could be his daughters. Amazing spiritual blessings. It goes on to say, to the praise and the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. So we're chosen, we're adopted, 
and then we're accepted. Do you believe that? That God accepts you if you're in Christ? If you've put your faith and trust in Christ and his death and resurrection, that God accepts you. We spend so much of our lives just trying to get acceptance, don't we? Trying to get it in relationships. Maybe the ultimate acceptance you're looking for in a relationship with a man, a relationship with a woman. It reminds me of the woman at the well. You know, she'd been married several times and the man that she was with wasn't her spouse and she was looking for acceptance, wasn't she, in relationships. You may be in a very committed marriage, but you find yourself very empty because you're looking to them for acceptance. You may be single and you're looking for acceptance. Maybe you're trying to find it in your education. You're trying to find it in your possessions. There's something that you're saying, I'm longing for acceptance. And the acceptance is found in Christ. We're accepted. The Father looks at us and he accepts us because he's well pleased with the Son. When Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, we were just there when we were over in Israel. The Father speaks from heaven and he says, this is my boy, right here. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Christ submitting himself to the plan of the Father, going to the cross, dying for our sins, to now the Father looks at us and he doesn't go, oh, you're a real mess up. You're a real failure. When are you going to get your act together? You're accepted. If we would only believe that, we're accepted in the beloved. We're accepted in Christ. And verse 7 is where we get into the meat of our study tonight. In him, there's our two words. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Please underline those two words we have. In him, we have. In him, we have. These are things that we possess, things that don't change. There's sure a lot of material out there for bad news, isn't there? I like listening to the news. I like reading the news. I'll usually listen to the news to and from church here. And I think I've just about heard enough of the political situation, you know? There's just so much bad news. There's so many things to be discouraged about. And that's not even in our own personal lives. That's just what's happening in the world, isn't there? Well, this is good news. This is things that we have that brings us encouragement as we have redemption. So this is building. We're chosen, we're adopted, we're predestined, we're accepted, and we're redeemed. And you might be saying, well, what does that mean to be redeemed? It it literally means to buy back, to buy back. One of the best illustrations that I've ever heard on redemption is this, is there was a young man who was into building model ships. And these were high-quality model ships that he would float out on the Great Lakes. And so he put money, time, and effort, custom-built, custom-painted, and he would sail it out on the, the Great Lakes. And one day, this great wind came and blew off his sailboat that he had put to, together, just a model sailboat. Months go by, and he's walking by a shop, and he's looking in the window of this pawn shop, and what does he see? he sees his boat that he had made, that he'd created, that he'd put so much work into it. But the owner didn't believe him. The owner's like, I'm not just going to give this back to you. And so he had to buy it back. He had to buy it for the second time. And God's created us. He's given us our very life and our very being. He's brought us into existence. But we sold ourselves because of sin, haven't we? We're slaves to sin. And the Father wanted us so desperately that he bought us back. He redeemed us. It's the idea of the price being paid in full 
And what was the price? It was his blood, the blood of his son, the blood of Jesus, in order that we could be redeemed, in order that we could be bought back. Maybe you're feeling like, I'm not so sure about my identity. I'm not so sure about God's love for me. You know, Eric, that's great that you're teaching about the love of God and the, the grace of God, but that has to be for someone else. That, that really can't, can't be for me. You have to look at this truth of redemption. God shows his value for you in what he was willing to pay for your salvation, to pay for you to be the son and daughter, and it was the blood of his son. And this is the unfolding message of the Bible, if you study it all the way through, is God had this plan from the very beginning that his son would pay the price for sin. And as you go through the Old Testament, every sacrifice that was made, animal sacrifice, was ultimately pointing to the Lamb of God that would be slain for our sins. The Bible tells us that without the remission of sin, or without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And that leads to the second part of this verse, is we're redeemed through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. So we have redemption, we're bought back, but we have forgiveness. This is what the Bible teaches, complete forgiveness. As Jesus hung on the cross and suffered, he cried out, it is finished. It's paid in full. God forgives completely. The Bible describes it as justification. It means to be declared righteous by God. All sin, past, present, future sin. But so much of our lives is spent, lived in guilt, in shame, in condemnation. Looking back 10 years, 10 minutes, last week, man, I wish I wouldn't have done this. Satan's an accuser of the brethren. He loves to bring our sin in front of us. And to, I want you to think of whatever brings condemnation in your life, regret in your life. I wish I wouldn't have done that. I wish I wouldn't have gone there. I wish I wouldn't have said this. Those images that come to mind and think of the blood of Jesus covering that image, paying that price so that we could be forgiven. And what the amazing thing about forgiveness is, is God removes our sin from us. That's how total and complete that forgiveness is. It's not just God going, well, you know, boys will be boys and girls will be girls. I'll be merciful this time. He punishes his son in order to provide forgiveness for us. Let that sink in. You're forgiven by God. Receive it. Live in it. This is who you are. You're in Christ. So you're redeemed and you're forgiven according to the riches of his grace. God never runs out of grace. He's never bankrupt on grace. He's never to that point of going, well, wow, you're a real case study. I've never seen anybody do that before. You know, that, that's beyond my work of redemption. He's never in that position, thankfully, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. So God gives grace and he just causes it to abound. He just loves to lavish it upon us. And how is it manifested? In two things, wisdom and prudence. And wisdom is knowledge applied. I like to think of it like the idiot gauge in my car, the gas gauge, that warning light that comes on and says, Eric, you need to get gas. Now, wisdom then says, I will go to the closest gas station. That's not always what I do. Sometimes I make a foolish decision, and a few times it's been rumored that I've run out of gas. But wisdom is knowledge applied. Wisdom is to respond 
to the truth that you see and you know. We could come Wednesday after Wednesday, weekend after weekend, read the Bible through and through again, but if we don't respond to it, if we don't apply it. So God gives us grace for salvation, and he also gives us grace to then apply the truth that we know. Before you were saved, you probably didn't have a huge desire to apply truth in your life. Who cares? That as Christ has gotten a hold of your heart and life, you've desired to to live in wisdom. The Proverbs gives us great insight on the value of wisdom. And prudence is discretion. Prudence is having the ability to sidestep trouble. You see troubles on the horizon, and you're willing to avoid it in discretion and prudence. And that's a manifestation of God's grace. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. This is part of the spiritual blessings that God's given to us, is that he's made his will known to us. You know the will of God. You know his desire for you to be in relationship with him. Even the most new Christian, the person that's just come to know Christ in the last few weeks or months, you know so much more than a lot of the greatest intellects of our day and age. You know where you came from, that you were created by God. Do you know a lot of people can't answer that question? They go, I have no idea where I came from. You know where you're going. You know that you have eternal life based on your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's a question that a lot of people can't answer. I have no idea what's gonna happen after I'm gone. You also know why you're here, and that's to enjoy a relationship with Jesus Christ. So you got the three big questions nailed very simply found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that was the manifestation of the will of God in your life. And then I love verse nine because it's, it's his good pleasure. It's what he purposed in himself. So inside of the very character and nature of God is that he's good, <laughs> that he's kind, and that he's gracious. He's going, oh, I want to save sinners. I'm going to send my son to die for sinners that turn from their sin and trust in Christ for salvation. That's just in and of himself. That's not anything that we could talk him into. It's not like we came to God and rubbed his big belly and then he got in a good mood and he's like, well, I'm gonna be kind. I'm gonna be gracious, you know. Oh, they're coming to Wednesday night Bible study. I'm gonna be kind. It's in himself. It's what he purposed in himself. It's only him that could come up with this great plan of grace. In verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and those that are on earth in him. So in the fullness of time, he's going to gather together everybody that's in him. This is part of the spiritual blessings. Those that are already in heaven, those that are on earth, what a gathering that's going to be around the throne room of God. The culmination of all things, it ends around the throne of God for believers. Only the cross of Jesus Christ could unite us from so many differences. There's so many differences. There's so many things that divide us. We would probably not even be in the same room tonight if it wasn't for Christ. We couldn't even agree on our favorite color, let alone our favorite kind of ice cream. I could argue with you on that one, right? We're divided in so many ways. We come from different backgrounds, different cultures. You put us together with other countries. How in the world could we ever be united together? Only through Christ. But Christ and the sacrifice 
upon the cross is so great, it's so large, it's so grand that it brings us together. It unites us for all of eternity. Here's our two words, in him. Also, we've obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we're heirs. We're accepted, we're chosen, we're redeemed, we're forgiven, but we're also heirs. You have an inheritance, an amazing inheritance. Far more than what money can provide. Romans 8 verse 17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Did you catch that? Joint heirs with Christ. You have the same inheritance as Christ. That's grace. And notice all of these things are given the moment that you trust Christ as your Savior. You have these things. Long before you start walking out the Christian life, long before you start being the husband that you're supposed to be, being the wife that you're supposed to be, the moment that you trusted Christ in your Savior, God said, you're redeemed. You have an inheritance. God didn't go, well, I'm going to give you 20% of the inheritance, and if you finish your college education, you'll get another 30%. And then if you show yourself responsible, I'll give you another 30%. And then if you, no, he's like, bam, here you go joint heirs. I know a few financial advisors. One of my friends, his job is just to counsel people that are wealthy on what they should do with their money. And a lot of times he says, don't leave it to your kids, you know, because it's just destroys the kids' lives. And they come to that conclusion. And so then they've got to figure out where to give, give all of their money, right? And they're like, well, I'd love to have that problem. But that's his job. That, that, that's what he does, right? And to, th- and to think those words through, he's saying, you know, don't give the inheritance because it's going to ruin your kid's life. And here God in his grace just goes, you're an heir. You're a joint heir in Christ. You have this. This is who you are. This is your identity. It's mind-blowing. Meditate on the end of verse 11. It says that he's purposed this in himself, and he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Do we believe that? God's sovereign, he's working, he's in control. And the difficulties of our lives and the ups and downs that our country goes through, he's working things according to the counsel of his will. In verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And this is what's so good about this, is we simply trust in faith, honest faith, depending upon the Lord, and then it's the glory of his grace. People look on and they go, How could God be so gracious to them? How could God love them so much? How could God just pour out his blessings on them? In him, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, they responded to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. I've got to tell you tonight, everything that we're reading about being in Christ is those who heard truth, who heard the gospel, who responded to it in faith, then God brings them into this position of being in Christ. Now, if you haven't responded in trusting the gospel, then you're not in Christ. And that's what the Bible tells us. And it would be wrong for you to think, well, I'm accepted, I'm adopted, I've got this inheritance. No, that would undermine what Christ is and what Christ has done. This is to those that realize, man, I'm a sinner. I've sinned. That separates me from from God. Jesus is God. 
He died for my sin. He rose again. And I believe him. I trust him. And he's my Lord. I've surrendered my life to him. Then you're in Christ. And those that Paul is writing to, they've responded to the gospel. Now, good news. If you're here because someone invited you, you're here out of obligation, you're here out of hunger, you're here out of curiosity, who knows what has motivated you, but you're here and you want to respond to truth, you want to respond to Jesus and trust him to salvation, then in that moment, you're in Christ. In that moment, you're accepted. In that moment, you're forgiven. And the end of verse 13 tells us, having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now this would resonate with those of this time because if there was an important document, then a king, a high official, would seal it with his stamp, take hot wax, and while the wax was was still warm, would put his seal there. And that was to let people know that, yeah, I indeed sent this letter. For this port city, Ephesus, large city, a lot of cargo going in and out. They would stamp the cargo. And it was showing ownership and also commitment that they were going to get that cargo where it needed to go. And what God is saying here is he's saying, I've sealed you. Bam, you belong to me. And what has he sealed us with? He sealed us with the Holy Spirit. What an amazing gift that God has given to us in the Holy Spirit. The third member of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, but, but yet one. And the Spirit of God, if you're a believer, bears witness that you're the child of God. Comforts you, ministers to you, gives you peace. And, and that's evidence to you that God has saved you. That's evidence to you that you are, you are sealed by the work of the Spirit in your life. And verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purpose possession to the praise of his glory. So we're thinking about all of these spiritual blessings. I'm accepted by God. I'm chosen by God. I'm forgiven. I'm sealed. Not only am I sealed, but God has made a down payment. It says the guarantee. The old King James translates this earnest. It's the idea of earnest money. If you have ever purchased a house, they make you put down earnest money to show that you really mean something in making this offer on this house. Maybe you take your used car and you put it on Craigslist and you list it for $3,000. And someone comes and says, hey, you know, I really like your car. It's a great car. I want to buy it, but I can't get the money to you until two weeks from now. You might be saying, well, somebody else might come along and offer me $3,000. They might offer me $3,200. So how do I know that you really are going to fulfill your word and fulfill your promise. And if they then said, well, here's $500, I'll put it down, $500, and if I don't come back, you can just keep it. But then if I do come back, I'll give you the remaining $2,500 that I owe you. You go, okay, you're earnest. You, you put some money where your mouth is. That's always good in business transactions, isn't it? And God has given us a down payment to show that he's serious about his commitment of salvation in our lives, and it's the Holy Spirit, and that's a great down payment. And then what's he promising in verse 14? Of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory, that he is going to complete the good work that he started in you, that he is going to take you into eternal life. Life is filled with lots of uncertainty, but what are we certain on? That God will be faithful to his promise. 
And that Holy Spirit is that down payment. Verse 15, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of the saints. That's a great thing to be known for. Two things, faith and love. I heard of your faith and I heard of your love. Our lives are resounding something. Our lives are saying something. They're declaring something. And is it faith and love. And notice what the love is for. The love is for all the saints, which is another term for believers. It's one thing to love God. He's very lovable. But it's another thing to love believers. We're fallen, right? And this church of Ephesus is known for faith, and they're known for love. Guys, do you know that our church has a reputation in the, in the community? People are going to know. They're going to ask, where do, you, where do you go to church? Where do you fellowship? Not just our own church, Rocky Mountain Calvary, but the body of Christ as a whole. And ultimately, the name of Christ. And is our testimony one of faith and love? Is it one, can people look at our lives and go, oh, you trust Christ. Oh, you love believers. You know, when we speak ill of other believers, that's not a good testimony of Jesus Christ. That's not declaring the love of God. And we don't want to be known for a lot of nastiness. We want to be known for simple trust in Christ and sincere love for for one another. It's important. Verse 16, Paul says, don't cease, do not, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. One of the things I really admire about the Apostle Paul is he dealt with a lot of hard things in Christians' lives, and a lot of Christians were really mean to Paul. They rejected him. They didn't always appreciate the fact that he brought honest truth to them, But Paul kept his heart soft towards God and soft towards believers. And he's able to say, you know what? I'm thankful for you guys. And I think that that's important in our lives to keep that attitude of thanksgiving for other believers. Believers are going to hurt you. Believers are going to let you down. Pastors and leaders are not going to be what you thought they would be. You know, don't put them on a pedestal. Look to Jesus Christ. But allow yourself to be in that place of remembering, oh man, believers are loved by God. They're the bride of Christ. And think about how believers have impacted your life, how believers have encouraged you, how God has used brothers and sisters in Christ to form you. And Paul's sitting back here and he's thinking of the church of Ephesus and he just says, man, I can't stop thanking God for you. And also, I haven't stopped praying for you. One of the things that inspires us is the prayer life of Paul. We see it because it was such a priority. In all of his letters, he writes a prayer. And he says, I'm praying this for you guys. How encouraging would that be to get a letter from the Apostle Paul saying, I'm just so thankful for your faith. I'm so thankful for your love. And I want you to know I'm praying for you. And this is exactly what I'm praying for you. I think that the prayers that we find in Scripture They're great models for us to take them into our own hearts, our own lives, and begin to pray those for people that God leads us to. Have you ever wondered, I don't know what to pray for for them. I mean, what do they really need in their life? Take this section of Ephesians 1 and pray it over that person. I know you have people on your heart tonight, and as we read this, then go home tonight and just take a few moments and pray that in for the people that God has placed on your heart. We'll see a similar prayer in chapter three. So this is what he prays, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation 
in the knowledge of him. So first he knows who he's praying to. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Nothing's impossible for him. And then he says, would you give him the spirit of wisdom? We've talked about it just a few minutes ago, but the importance of knowledge applied in our lives. Wisdom spares us from pain. Wisdom glorifies God. How many times has foolishness, sin, ignoring God's truth led to destruction in our lives? So we pray this for one another. Pray this over Rocky Mountain Calvary. Pray it over your kids. Pray it over your friends. God, give them a spirit of wisdom. You can see it on people when they operate in godly wisdom. It's attractive even in the workplace. It's attractive in the neighborhood. It's attractive in the family. Give them a spirit of wisdom. And also the revelation and the knowledge of him. And I think this is the most important. And Paul's saying to believers, he's praying this for believers that they would know more about who Christ is. The whole Christian life is summed up in knowing more about Christ. Revelation means to be enlightened, to have manifestation, to have the light bulb go on. We're going through a a book on staff devotions called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. And it's taking simple but dynamic truths about who Christ is and meditating upon Christ. Today was a chapter on Jesus being the lion and the lamb. What great attributes of Christ. We think about Christ as the lion. It's majestic. It's powerful. It's Christ cleansing the temple. They've pretty much got the Jewish mafia going on at the Temple Mount. It's a huge operation. The Temple Mount during Herod's period was huge. Lots and lots of people coming during the feast. And here comes Christ, and he gets a whip out. Yeah, Christ got a whip out. He's like, "Mm mm-mm, not anymore. That was the lion. Hear him roar. You know what I'm saying? He comes up to the storm, the Sea of Galilee, and he calms it. He's like, bam, it's done. And by the way, before I calmed the storm, I walked on water. I walked on the waves that was rocking your life. That's a lion move right there. Here's the demoniac hanging out in a cave, cutting himself, chained up, multiple demons inside of him. Jesus casts out the demons, and this man is standing in his right mind. He's a lion. Jesus is a lion of the tribe of Judah. I was convicted that a lot of times I don't focus enough on the power of Christ, the boldness of Christ. He would walk into men's lives and he would say, follow me. They'd say, all right, let's go. I'm leaving everything and I'm following you. That's a lion right there. But yet at the same time, he's a lamb. How do those two go together? That he would be a lion and he would be a lamb. A lamb is humble, a lamb is meek, a lamb is approachable. Jesus was so strong and so majestic, but yet so humble that the little kids felt that they could come and hop right up on his lap and he blessed them. If we had a lamb in here tonight, everybody could relate to the lamb. (laughs) But not so much a lion. And Jesus has that ability where we're drawn to him. And ultimately it was expressed as he died upon the cross. A lamb led to the slaughter. But then three days later, he rises from the dead and he conquers sin and death and he roars as the lion. The book of Revelation, he comes and brings his judgment and it's the wrath of the lamb. So you never lose sight of this 
double nature in Christ, this beautiful excellence that he's the lion and the lamb. And I found myself just encouraged meditating upon who Christ is. And probably, I hope, at different points in your life, there's these light bulbs that have went on about who Christ is and your relationship with him. And doesn't it make all the difference in the world? It's everything. And when you look in the Greek, this word knowledge, it's epinosis. And it's full and complete knowledge. Like, we know about Abraham Lincoln, don't we? But we don't know Abraham Lincoln. I don't know Abraham Lincoln in the way that I know my wife, Amber. Or I know my children. I know my children. I know my wife. I I know my, my kids. I know my father. That's epinosis. It's knowledge by experience. And this isn't just the knowledge that goes, I can rattle off Ephesians chapter 1. I can rattle off Romans 8, 28. I can rattle off these promises of God. This is knowledge by experience that I know that God is good because I've experienced that. I know that God is present in the storm because I've experienced that. And that's the greatest thing that we can pray for the church. That's the greatest thing that we can pray for one another. Guys, I hope that we're not just into church attendance. I don't think so. That we're here saying, I want to encounter Christ. I want to draw near to Christ. I want more revelation of Christ. Pray that for your spouse. Pray that for your kids. Pray that for your grandkids. If you're single, pray that for those that the Lord has has put upon your heart. Because that's where transformation comes. As we have the knowledge of Christ. Verse 18 is very similar, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. The heart of what Paul is saying is that you'd really believe everything I've just written to you. I've just told you that every spiritual blessing belongs to you, that you are the son of God, you are the daughter of God, you're accepted, you're forgiven, all of your sin. You have an inheritance, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, and he's saying, I just hope now that you would believe it that your eyes would be open to it and you'd go, wow, this is for me. This, this actually belongs to me. That's the heart of what Paul is praying. And he says that you would know what is the hope of his calling. And this is mind-blowing because we automatically think that it's the hope of our calling, but notice it's speaking about Christ. What was the hope of Christ's calling? It was the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And this is far out. If you haven't felt blessed by this point in the Bible study, I think at this point you're going to feel blessed. And what was the hope of Christ's calling was being reunited with the glory of the Father, but he had that before he came here to this earth and died upon the cross. What was he looking forward to? Inheriting the saints. That's what verse 18 tells us. The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Of all the things that Christ could have and want and desire, he would want us. He would want me. I don't even get that. Oh, that I would believe that. That's his inheritance. It's us. That was the hope of his calling. Verse 19, what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power. So we begin to just take this passage. We pray for those that we love, would you give them a spirit of wisdom? Would you give them deeper revelation into the knowledge of Christ? Would you allow them to have their eyes opened? Would they know your power that is towards them? See, notice what verse 19 is saying. 
is it's understanding God's power, but then it's knowing God's power towards us. The same spirit that rose Christ from the dead lives in you. The spirit of God lives inside of you. You're no longer a slave to sin. And that, that's the prayer of Paul, is that we would understand God's power and how God's power is in us and how God's wanting to work through us. He expresses God's power in verse 20 and 21, which he worked in Christ, which he raised him from the dead, and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. So what's the display of God's power? The greatest display of God's power is raising Christ from the dead. And he raised Christ up, and he seated Christ next to him at the right hand in heavenly places. Chapter 2 tells us that we're seated with Christ. In verse 21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come. So he's over every demonic realm. He's over Satan, every demon, every principality, every power, every name that's named. He's greater than Donald Trump. He's greater than Bernie Sanders. Greater than Hillary Clinton. Amen? Greater than Obama. Greater than Netanyahu. Greater than Michael Jordan. Greater than John Elway. Greater than Peyton Manning. He's greater than every name that's ever been named. You put the name in there and you try to compare it to the name of Jesus Christ, they shouldn't even be mentioned in the same sentence, right? He's greater. He's greater than everything. And he put all things under his feet, and this is so encouraging. All things are underneath the feet of Jesus Christ. Every blessing, but also every difficulty. I mentioned Jesus walking upon water. He walked upon the waves that rocked the boat of the lives of the disciples, and the same is true for us. The storm that we're in, it's underneath the feet of Jesus. Every difficulty, every blessing, it's all underneath his feet, his power, his control, and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Christ's resurrection, his death resurrection, was for the purpose of Jesus being the head of all things, and especially the church. He is the head of the church, and may we never forget that. We are the body, by God's grace. He's made us up to be members of the body of Christ, but he's the leader of the church. I hope you know this. I hope this is true in your life, that you follow Christ. He's your commander-in-chief. He's your leader. He's your discipler. He's your mentor. He's your counselor. He's your teacher, because that's what God always intended. Don't get your eyes on a man. Don't get your eyes on a woman. We want Christ to have proper place. We want him to have his place in our church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We're the body. What an amazing compliment that God has given that he'd say, you're the expression of myself in this lost and dying world. You're my hands, you're my feet, you're my body. Church, you are in him, you are in him. If you don't know Christ as your savior, as we come to communion and we come to prayer tonight, there's gonna be a ministry team that's available here in the front. And I would encourage you to receive Christ as your Savior. God's calling you by name. He's saying, I love you. I died for you. I rose again. Will you repent of your sin? Will you trust me for salvation? I've got to tell you, if you're not ready for your life to change, you're not ready to trust Christ for salvation. See, did, Jesus didn't die and rise again to say, just keep, keep going. Just keep doing what you're doing. He died and rose again to forgive us of our sin 
and to change our lives completely. And he has the power to be able to do that. He's ready to forgive you. He's ready to take control of your life, to change you from the inside out, and he loves you. And for believers, may you meditate on these truths that you're in Christ. That's who you really are. You're in him. And then begin to take Ephesians 1 and pray it over those that you love. Pray it over this church. Pray it over the church leadership. Pray it over everyone who comes through these doors. It's a powerful prayer that God would work these things in our lives. Jesus said this. He said, if you pray in my name, I'll give it to you. And that's not praying for cars and raises and necessarily an easier life because praying in the name of Jesus is the character and nature of Christ. Do you think that Ephesians 1 is in the character and nature of Christ? Absolutely. So as you pray this paragraph over those that you love, you know that God's going to answer it because he's faithful and he's gracious. So let's, let's stand and pray together. Jesus, as we come to the communion table, may we have a, a personal time with you, an encounter with you, understanding that you're the lion, understanding that you're the lamb. May we truly understand our position in you in a greater way. And for those that don't know you, we pray that tonight would be the night that they'd be saved, that they would be the child of God. So would you bring application of your word? Would you bring encouragement? In Jesus' name, amen.